This is a Lip Media Podcast. You're listening to Deviant Women. The podcast that's unafraid to get down and dirty with the good, the bad and everything in between. Join us as we unpick the blurry zigzag of history and myth and the downright messy and misunderstood stories of femininity that we've been telling ourselves for centuries. From hags to enchantresses. Genderqueering lady lovers. To gin-swirling decadent bohemians. And brilliant muses and killer queens. Join us on Deviant Women, the podcast. Deviant Women. Welcome back to Deviant Women, Season 4, the podcast where we talk to you about Deviant Women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. I am Lauren. I'm Alicia. And we're back. Here we are. Season 4, 2020. It happens. The 20s came, Lauren. The roaring 20s came. They're here. They're roaring. And are you a flapper yet? I've been a flapper my whole life. <laughs> Have you really? I've been waiting for this moment uh, for forever. Have you? Well, it's pretty exciting. We've got a, a pretty good season uh, lined up for you oh this year. Oh, my God. Do we ever. Could All right. You? So this season, for one thing, we are going to go to Russia. <gasps> Yeah. It's cold. Yeah. It's, it's Siberian. <laughs> but when in Russia, who can say a couple Ooh. of different periods of Russian history? Well, some may be mythological, some may be real. And we're also going to go to France oh. and we're going to hang out with some courtesans yes. of the court. Let's do that. And we're also going to have some more jazz age jazz stuff. Jazz age. Icons, we love the Jazz Age and it is the Roaring Twenties again. Yeah, we're definitely going there. We're also going to stay in our own backyard and we're going to be talking about some Australian women of note and that doesn't mean that you should shut off because they're very interesting people. We've (laughs) got bush rangers, we've got activists. We've got suffragettes. We've got, of course, more witches, more muses, more, more bo- singers, more, more dancers. More bohemian artists. Yes, we do love the bohemian artists. Then you can poke artist. a stick at. Of course. And those women who were queens and led ruthlessly and maybe gave very few fucks about what they were doing. We've got it all. It's maybe coming. even some pirates. <gasps> I've got a pirate. I've got a pirate. do love a pirate. So if we haven't got you interested in this season, then I don't know what more we can give you people. Except that today's figure hopefully will set the tone for the season to come because she is everything that we love. She is a leader. She is a powerful priestess. She is an activist. She is a healer. She is a queen. She is maybe a person who sacrificed animals, but maybe not. (laughs) But maybe that's just the result of a racist media. Who can say? Maybe she mesmerized good folk into doing bad deeds. (gasps) Or maybe she healed the sick and freed enslaved persons. Let's find out. I am talking about the queen of voodoo, Marie Laveau. We've had her on the list for a long time. She's been on the list since literally day one. Since the beginning. When I'm we so first started brainstorming for this podcast. So for anyone who hasn't heard that name before, Lauren, lay it out oh for my us. Oh, God. Okay, so really there's nobody 
for who held court like Marie Laveau. And in New Orleans, where she is most well known, she is where the queen we set our scene. of New Orleans. Yep. She is still talked about to this day. People go to her tomb and they leave her offerings. In fact, her, her tomb in St. Louis Cemetery is so popular and famous that they actually had to close the cemetery to all visitors who didn't have family in the cemetery or who were not with a tour guide. So you can only visit her with a tour guide these days unless you know somebody who is buried there. Wow. She has been resurrected in films and television and in books and she is portrayed as this wily and intelligent force of nature because she was. (laughs) She was a woman of colour who asserted herself in a white man's world and championed the oppressed and maybe had a snake that did some magic for her. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> okay. Excellent. And so you've set a pretty good scene so far, Thank actually. You. But what time in okay. history are we going to, Lauren? Well, all right. We are going to probably 1801. Who can say? Well, this is it. Who can say? Some sources say 1794, but it is what? likely 1801. Okay, yeah. Okay. The, her birthday. Yeah, yeah. I okay. mean, yeah. there's a little bit of contention. She does have a birth certificate from 1801, but some people think that she may have made some little changes because she wanted to seem younger than she was, but we don't know that this is the case. Who can blame her? Best information that we have is that she was born in 1801 in the French quarter of New Orleans. And I hope that I'm saying New Orleans the way that I'm supposed to, (laughs) because I actually watched quite a few YouTube videos so that I could Try to get this correct. Whether you're saying New Orleans. New Orleans, New Orleans, New Orleans. New Orleans. The consensus. That was the most Australian way <laughs> anyone's ever said New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans. Oh, yeah, um, down at New Orleans. Just going down to New Orleans. That sounds like a place sounds to like go a to. hardware store. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Just going down to New Orleans. Going to get myself a wrench. And a hammer. And then. And we'll get some fish and chips on the way home. Yeah, from New Orleans fish and chippery. <laughs> yeah. Good. <laughs> There's quite a few reasons why the dates in Marie Laveau's story get so confused. And this is because, quite frankly, Marie Laveau had a daughter, another voodoo priestess named Marie Laveau. <laughs> That's, so we've got Marie Laveau the first and oh, we wait, have Marie so, Laveau the second. Okay. But we also have... Marie Laveau the third. Well, okay, yes. So basically Marie Laveau the first had several daughters and she named all of them Marie. <laughs> so we have Marie Vangelie Paris, Marie Eloise Eucharist, Marie Louise and Marie Philomene and Marie Laveau had a half-sister by her father who was also named, give it to me, Alicia. Marie. Marie Laveau. Aye. So... We have quite a few Marie Laveaux, two very famous voodoo priestesses named Marie Laveau, but we are going to refer to them as Marie the First and Marie the Second. They are otherwise also kind of referred as Marie the Widow, the Widow Paris, and Marie the Second. The Widow Paris is an excellent name. Yeah. And another thing about this story is that history and myth are very, very difficult to separate. We've learned that the hard way. But we're also really embracing that on this podcast. And I feel like that's become 
part of what we do here. I feel like that's pretty much most of what we do. It is. It's this intertwining of history and myth. And I've been thinking about this a lot more because I feel like, okay, so this is my perspective, but to me, history is a kind of mythology Mm. because history really is only ever written by a person, right? And it tends to be a person with a very subjective and usually very privileged background. Mm. And whenever we tell a story like this, Whenever we here on this podcast retell these kinds of stories, in a sense, we are re-mythologizing them, yeah, right? Yeah. We are adding to the mythology of these stories because we remember some details, we take some details away, we reinforce certain ideas, and that is a kind of re-mythologizing. And this is something that has happened with Marie Laveau to such an enormous extent. And it started in her lifetime and has continued all the way through to today. We've got depictions of her in things like American Horror Story, which are not super accurate. She's also been written about in quite a few fictional novels, which really sensationalize her life, romanticize it, make it much more about her love life in a lot of ways. Mm. And I think this is something that we sort of touched on in our summer special, uh, which is also a Patreon content about the Valiant Ladies of Potosi. Yeah. And this is something that I think that we keep coming back to time and time again as well is this whole idea of history. When we use this word history, suddenly things that are historical, that are in the historical past, we give them some kind of Mm. weight of truth. Absolutely. Like, okay, that was history, therefore it's Thus, it is very important and it must be real and all of the written documents thus are more important than other Because this is the thing that comes up in this story. We have the written accounts of her life, uh, which are largely newspapers. So we have the kind of records of births and marriages and things. And that I guess, prove that she was a real person. Th- exactly. Yeah. But then we have newspaper records and people who were writing about her from a kind of anthropological perspective. And they were mm, white men in the first case. But there's another one, exception to that that I'm going to discuss in a minute, a really important one. But the other thing is there's a lot of oral stories Mm -hmm. that are around Marie Laveau. And one of the reasons for this is because in the 1930s, the US government began what became the Federal Writers Project, which is basically this aim to collect folklore and stories from the lives of ordinary people. And so in the 30s, these writers went out to... New Orleans, and they spoke to people who knew Marie Laveau. And those oral stories had, and these are people They're who like so. The brother's groom of New Orleans. Yes, very much. And so these are stories from either people who were very old and were children when Marie Laveau was around, or their stories that have been passed down from generation to generation. And there are still stories that are being passed down from generation to generation. And these stories are obviously often quite contradictory, but that's also because lots of people have different perspectives about Mm. who this was she Mm. was a commanding woman and that commanding force can either be someone who is there to protect you and is there to help you or she could be frightening as fuck yeah you know and so the oral histories of course contradict each other but that's because all of us have different perspectives of events but i think something that i really want to emphasize in this story is that oral traditions particularly when they come from marginal cultures, are as important as written histories, Mm. if not more reliable. In the case of somebody like Marie Laveau, when we have white journalists chronicling this fucking woman who's practicing this 
let's be honest, in the eyes of white people, terrifying West African tradition that they associate with witchcraft and devilry, like they are going to write about that through a particular lens. Mm, mm -hmm. But because that's written down, that's what we privilege just because it made it into print. And I think that that's really bullshit. And so I think it's really important that when telling these kinds of stories, we really think about and reflect on the fact that there are multiple versions. Mm. And I think that that's what history is. History is constantly remythologizing something from various different perspectives. And I also just wanted to flag it because I think that's something I think we both want to be more conscious of as we move forward into season four. And obviously we started with the Valiant Ladies of Potosi Mm. kind of Mm. really more, much more consciously down this track. And a lot of the written material about Marie Laveau was written as this kind of counter myth designed to demonize her because she was so powerful Uh and so influential that it was a way of trying to limit her because you don't want to have a black population to become too inspired by a powerful black leader, right? When you want to maintain your white patriarchal Christian power. So sorry for my little rant. (laughs) I just wanted to flag that because it came up because it's immediately like when you start telling the story and you have already these diverging versions of events, I think it's really important Yeah, to flag that. And I do want to talk about a couple of particular important sources for this story. The first proper scholarly account came from, I bet you're going to be super surprised when you hear this, Zora Neale Hurston, who wrote Their Eyes Were Watching God. Oh, really? Yes. I am super surprised. Right? So she was, as well as being a hugely prolific author and writer of novels and short stories and poems. She was also, and a filmmaker, she was also an ethnographer and anthropologist. I did not know that. But that would have been a long time after Marie Laveau. Yeah, she wrote, she published Hoodoo in America, which was her study, in 1931. And, And she actually went and she lived and she studied voodoo and she talked to huge numbers of people in the community and she really like became involved in the voodoo community yeah. in New Orleans yeah. in the 1930s. Her study portrays Marie Laveau as really powerful and a positive influence on New Orleans and the voodoo community. But this was then followed by a guy named Robert Talent's book, Voodoo in New Orleans in 1946, which harked back to a lot of the older mythologized stereotypes that had kind of been sensationalized in the press and were much more racist, let's Mm, be honest. mm -hmm. And I I think a lot of what is in this book is responsible for the negative stereotypes that continue to flourish today. So those are two things I'm going to talk about a bit. Mm. And yeah, I'm going to go back into her story now. So we're just going to keep that (laughs) sort of like whose story gets privileged when and where and how. Yeah. And especially when our two major scholars here are a black woman and a white man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's so lot. let's go back to 1801, probably. Maybe. When she's born Maybe. in the French Quarter <laughs> of New Orleans to Charles Laveau and his mistress, Marguerite de Cantel. And she was a free woman of African and Native American descent, probably of the, now I apologize if I uh, pronounce this incorrectly, a Choctaw nation. And 
her mother, Marguerite, was likely a conjure doctor and a healer. And conjure a lot of doctor. Yes, I know. Mm. Conjure doctor sounds like a very cool profession. It does. It's very descriptive. So it's believed that a lot of power is transmitted through kinship, which explains why her daughter Marie ended up with so much power. Um, but also she was probably taught mm-hmm. a lot of this mm-hmm. stuff by her mother. Now, we don't know a lot about Marie Laveau's childhood. She probably wasn't really educated in a Western sense, in the sense that she probably couldn't read or write. Mm -hmm. However, like I said, I think the education that she did receive was very much of that kind of traditional education that came from her mother, as well as she grew up Catholic, like very, very Catholic. So a lot of that kind of Catholic, Mm. how to be a good woman kind of stuff. Yeah. So what's also important to note is at the beginning of the 19th century, particularly I think for us as Australians, we don't really think about this, but the Louisiana Purchase just happened, like happened in 1803. Okay. And this is when Napoleon sold Louisiana to the Americans for not very much money. He's just like, yeah, you guys can have it. we've touched on this in a someone's story in the past, but I can't think whose. No, I can't think either. Anyway, carry on. And also the thing about... Louisiana is it was a real melting pot already. Mm. So we have the French. It was a French colony. It then was ruled by the Spanish. And so Lavos grew up speaking Creole French and really didn't feel like she had a connection with, I guess, like the American mm. English Protestant idea of what America is because she was she spoke French. She was Catholic. She was Creole, you know. The city was also really home to a lot of well, I guess recently free men and women. Mm. So these people who had formerly been enslaved and were now setting up entrepreneurial ventures. At the same time, the Haitian Revolution had just happened. And so there were also a lot of Haitian refugees who were flocking to Louisiana because that was another French colony. So it was sort of a close place where they shared a lot of cultural and linguistic ties. And so all of these kind of people are mixing together. Mm. So Laveau was baptized in the Catholic Church and Catholicism was, despite the fact that we think of her as being this voodoo queen, Catholicism was central to her life and Mm. central to her practice. And I don't think Catholicism and voodoo are terribly distant. No, and Catholicism and witchcraft in general aren't necessarily at odds with each other because we've seen this in some of our other figures as well. For example, someone like Catherine Monvoisin, who we looked at last season or the season before, Uh, I can't remember, but (laughs) she was another one of those figures who on the one side was a devout Catholic and on the other side practiced, quote, unquote, witchcraft. Yeah. And in her life, in her world, the two went hand in hand. Yeah, and I mean, Catholicism in many ways is very superstitious. Like you've mm. got mm-hmm. idols, rituals, so yeah, many rituals. So many rituals. I mean, like they keep bones in gold-plated some relics, thing yeah. like relics, and and they're You're holy. drinking the blood of Christ. Yeah, it's a very superstitious religion. Yeah. yeah, it makes complete sense to me that these two things would go hand in yeah. hand. So in her family, she also had two siblings who were half siblings, I guess. And they her- weren't called Marie. No, surprisingly. Okay. Cuz her mother had she was in a relationship with this rich plantation owner named Henry Decantel. And is relationship the word? She was a free woman and it is thought 
that it was a relationship. Okay. A consensual relationship. Yeah, because she like went off and had an affair with like Marie's father, Charles. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of the stories say that Marie's father, Charles Laveau, was the rich plantation owner, but actually he was probably another free man of colour, whereas the plantation owner was like, yeah, Dacantel, who was the father of her siblings. Mm. And one of them was born, I think, again, it's very confusing, one I think was born before and one after. So it was like her mother was in this relationship, went off with this other dude for a yeah. very brief amount of time right. and then came back. Mm-hmm. And also the other thing is that Decantel, he bequeathed Marguerite a large sum of money in his will for like, quote, having taken care of him in his illness, which was apparently a sort of code way of being able to acknowledge their relationship and and therefore leave her money because as a white person he couldn't leave money Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. a black woman so it was a relationship and and they kind of just couldn't formalize it and it also perhaps suggests to us that her mother was maybe a practicing voodoo doctor who was quite adept at healing because he was quite sickly and she was taking care of him and this is because she possibly traces her ancestry back to the congo's nyangas i hope i'm saying that correctly which are i guess like uh, the closest approximation is like mediums or priestesses Mm. they're sort of fortune tellers dream interpreters they use trance and dance and drumming in their rituals. And so just before her 18th birthday, probably, Marie Laveau married a man named Jacques Paris. Ooh. Jacques Paris. Jacques yeah. Paris sounds much more It romantic. sounds so much fancier. And he was one of the Haitian refugees who was in the city. Okay. And they wed at St. Louis Cathedral by Pierre Antoine, who became Marie Laveau's mentor. So he was sort of on the Catholic side of things. And he was apparently quite open to a lot of the wide interpretations mm, of, of what Catholicism, Catholicism might yeah, be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And her father, Charles Laveau, gave them a very generous wedding gift, which was a Forks. house. Oh. Forks? A house. More than forks. More than cutlery. But unfortunately, the marriage was not a happy one. Now, Laveau claimed that the marriage was childless. So, wait, hang on. She didn't claim that it didn't consummate the marriage necessarily. Oh, no. Just that they had no children. Yeah. Right? However, there are records of a daughter, Marie Evangeline oh. Paris, who was born in 1823 and probably died from yellow fever. Okay. There's also a possibility that she was either had another child with Jacques or was already pregnant with another man's child Ooh. when they wed. And that child also died of yellow fever. What is yellow all... fever going around? Honestly, so much yellow fever. It was epidemic. It I was... don't actually even really know what yellow fever is. It's just like a very bad disease that is caused. <laughs> mm. It's a virus that's caused by, I think it's mosquitoes that pass oh, it. Kind of like a malaria type yeah. deal. And so when you're in somewhere like Louisiana, New Orleans, which is on the river... It's a lot Ooh, of mosquitoes, yes, I see. Mm-hmm. very easy to transmit yellow fever. And this is actually something that Marie Laveau became very famous for because she used to nurse a lot of people with yellow fever and she never contracted yellow fever in her life, which is one of the reasons I think why people suspected that she like had these supernatural powers because she was 
in contact with yellow fever all the time. But was but, and she never got it. But of course, also she probably built up an immunity yeah, to it, just like a vaccine. But the thing as well is, it's like, is yellow fever something you catch from other people? You can catch it from other people. Okay, so like it's not, it's not exclusively transmitted right. through mosquitoes. Is it the coronavirus? Okay, let's not go down that path. Let's mm, not. Okay, maybe a little bit. Okay, okay. So one day after the two children had died, Jacques just fucking disappeared. <gasps> Abandonment. Maybe. Maybe. Well. You can't have a maybe abandonment. There's three theories. Oh, he was murdered. Yes. He. That's theory two. He ran away with another woman. Theory one. That's all I got. He died of yellow fever. Oh, he died of yellow fever. Theory well, that's three. Not a, that's not abandonment. No. Okay. Well, what You can't happened? accuse someone of abandoning you if they die. Then why does murder come up in your list? Oh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So theories are. Most likely theory, he left after the children died. He was just like, well, you know what? This isn't working out. There's no reason for me to be here now that our children are dead, so I'm just going to fuck off. Reason two, Marie Lafoe was like, I'm sick of your shit. You're having an affair and offed him. Reason three is his children contracted yellow fever. There's a very good chance that he also contracted yellow fever. And because the record keeping back then was so shit, mm. we probably just don't know. Yeah, and we'll never know. Probably. Nah, we'll Possibly. Never know. I would say that the idea of Laveau murdering him is one of those sensationalized, yeah. like, racist myths. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Trying to, to feed into that personality. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, she then started going by the widow Paris, and she was quite a, a smart, intelligent, entrepreneurial woman. She's like, got to make it on her own now. She can't rely on Jacques anymore. So she set up herself a small business. Oh! Do you know what this small business was? Uh, healing and midwifery. Uh, you're not terribly far Whoa. off, but I feel like every woman's job back then was healing and midwifery. Sewing. She actually opened a beauty parlor. I was so close. She was a hairdresser oh. and beautician. And so she had like a premises and people would come to her on Royal Street or more importantly, she would go and visit them in their homes because a lot of her clientele were wealthy white people. Oh. These like wealthy white women couldn't really leave their houses that oh, often. They weren't going to go down They're not gonna to go Royal down. Street. No, no, thank you. So she'd go to their houses and in their houses she'd have a look around. She'd talk to the servants or the slaves. She'd gather her information. She'd be like talking to these bored housewives about like, oh, yeah, what's up? What's going on with your husband? And then like. Blah, 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 politics, blah, blah, blah. He's complaining about this thing that's happening at this important, like, echelon of society. Or blah, 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 lady so-and-so's husband has been fucking this other person. And so-and-so is having an affair with blah, blah, blah. Oh, and, no. And this person stole this from that person. You know? Loose lips sink ships. That is correct. And then she would also go up to, yeah, like, the servants and the slaves and be like, hey, what have you guys seen? Like, what have you been hearing on the grapevine about what's going on? Sometimes apparently she'd even threaten them. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so of course then people would come to her because she's starting to gain this reputation Mm. for herself at the same time for being a voodoo queen. And she's got all of this knowledge because she's just like got all of these dozen bees in her ears telling her what's going on and so people would be like oh i'm so afraid that like 
my husband's having an affair and then she'd be like he is having an affair and he's having an affair with this woman and you know what you should do about it you should do this and this and this and they'd be like oh my god Marie Laveau you have the second sight and she'd be like yeah I'm also on the grapevine (laughs) (laughs) so she just definitely like knew how to use this to her advantage she was really tuned in to like knowing what's going on and knowing what the kind of right kind of information was to have and knew how to use it yeah but not adverse to letting people think that she might have just known it purely through intuition oh like absolutely which i would totally do as well like if people like (laughs) it makes sense you're so intuitive do you have like the second sight be like yeah it's a blessing and a curse (laughs) you would yeah i would you would (laughs) And so, like I said, this is when she starts to really start to practice voodoo. So would you like to know a little bit more about voodoo? I've been waiting. Okay, great. Impatiently for you to get there. Good. So voodoo is in the Louisiana tradition, originated in what is now Benin in West Africa as a vodun, which in Fon, the local language, means spirit or deity. So there's several different types of voodoo, which is why it's important to clarify what Louisiana voodoo is because it looks different from Haitian voodoo or West African voodoo. So the people who were enslaved from West Africa and Central Africa brought it to Haiti and there it developed its own tradition. And because there was sort of an influence from the broader, I guess, like African diaspora, and because so many people were forced to convert to Catholicism, the Haitian voodoo incorporated elements from the Yoruba and Congo people, Taino beliefs and Catholicism, obviously. So Louisiana voodoo is very similar. It also comes from the West and Central African diaspora. They were the first ones to be enslaved and brought to uh, Louisiana by Europeans. So it was more closely rooted in that West African Vodun tradition. And then after the Haitian revolution and uprising in 1791, and lots of those Haitian folk fled over to the nearest French colony, which was Louisiana. It kind of brought in some elements of Haitian voodoo, but it also had its unique traditions and beliefs. So something that's important is that in the French colonies, African slaves were often kept in family and community units mm-hmm. much more than they, they were, were separated out. Yeah. in mm-hmm. English. Yeah. yeah. And so that meant that they were able to keep up some of these traditions. And the French were also just far more tolerant of their customs. And because the French were Catholic, they also believed in giving them like Sundays off, which meant mm-hmm. that they had time to gather together. They used this time for other things like working or going to the markets or whatever, but it did mean that there was a much stronger sense of community. So that's one of the reasons why voodoo survived in French colonies where it didn't survive in American plantations. As much. As much. Yeah. Yeah. yeah to yeah. the same extent. Yeah. Yeah. That's not to say it didn't survive at all. Yeah. Yeah. So Zora Neale Hurston, like I said, she went and lived in the voodoo community in New Orleans. And so she said that along with the Catholic influence, which brought in, so particularly again in the Louisiana tradition, there was the idea of worship at altars, of holy water, incense and candles. There was also an influence from spiritualism, which really involves communion with the dead. Mm -hmm. So spiritualism is all about talking to dead people, hosting dead people through your body, Mm -hmm. you know, inviting them in to speak through you. It has a lot of those very similar kinds of veneration of the dead and communication with the dead. 
However, I guess the thing is in Marie Laveau's time, spiritualism wasn't really a thing yet because it didn't really start so until, until the 1850s. Late, yeah, until the late 1800s, yeah. So when Hurston was writing about it, there were quite a lot of spiritualist churches operating in New Orleans. And a lot of the spiritualist churches are very much intertwined with voodoo. And they're like sort of, again, in the same way that voodoo and Catholicism can operate quite well together so can spiritualism and voodoo and so they operate well together and it's also a way of making this is a sad reality but spiritualism even though it's all about talking to dead people and like literally trying to manifest the dead and have them manifest into your body because it's white and often middle class it's respectable and you can have a spiritualist church and nobody looks down on you and like, well, some people do, let's be honest, mm. but you know, so a lot of voodoo communities in the kind of twenties and thirties, they kind of incorporated spiritualism because it made it more respectable. Mm. So it was unsurprisingly voodoo was a very oppressed and very underground yeah. religion. But as you said though, like with that idea of kind of finding, I mean, this is what happens Time and time again, we see in any sort of story of any particular faith or tradition or religion being, you know, sort of subsumed into a broader tradition, you find ways to perpetuate, you find ways to preserve and Mm. continue to practice your beliefs under that sort of respectable guise. That's right. Of the popular, whatever that popular religion is at the time. And, you know, people have done that. For millennia, mm, every absolutely. time you've got some kind of colonizing force or yeah. you're, you, you know, you yeah. are, and it happens again and again and this again. This is the reason, I think this is one of the reasons why so many Catholic traditions kind of end up seeming very superstitious. Yeah. It's because local people are like, oh, yeah, okay, this deity that we used to worship is now Saint so-and-so. And it's and basically about hiding in plain sight. Absolutely. And this is the way that so many of these beliefs have survived yes. and the only reason why so yep. many of these beliefs have survived. Yep, totally. And because these are the dominant religions, it's just safer mm. to mm-hmm. do it that way and then therefore you don't have to risk quite as much. It's still a little bit of a risk, but it just gives you that cloak of respectability. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but also another thing is, of course, Marie Laveau genuinely was devoutly Catholic. You know, she really did. She was the type of person mm, who was it's like. It's not like it was a pretense. Yeah. yeah. And I think this is the thing. So many of these beliefs align with each other because they are, in essence, kind of saying very much the same thing. It's like mm. if you strip away all of the ritual and you strip away the rules, so much of what is foundational is very similar it's one of the reasons why my phd looks at mystics moving into witchcraft moving into mediumship because it's this is this way that women have have had communion with the sacred in these all of these different forms which on the surface look really different from each other but in actuality Mm. are are very Mm. very similar and are doing the same things i find it totally fascinating and i could talk about it for a long time but I won't. But back to Marie Laveau. Let's talk about her. Mm. Because then she found love again. Oh. Yeah. Love properly this time, really. Love Jesus? She did love Jesus. Okay. But, she but that's also, not who we're talking about. She also loved a man named Christophe Clapion. <laughs> I love Jesus, but I also love Christophe. Yeah. And now Christophe, wow, he was a white dude of noble French aristocratic descent. Thank you, 
Very much. He was a fancy man. <laughs> a fancy man. A fancy man. I like a fancy man. He was a veteran of the Battle of New Orleans. And these two, they were very much in love. They stayed together for the rest of his life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh at that. But <laughs> she outlived a him. That's totally a line, one person yeah. always outlives the other, yeah, usually. No, that's good. That's good. Unfortunately, though... His life was short. He, because of miscegenation laws, which mean that two people of different races can't intermarry, they couldn't formally marry each other oh. because he was white and she was only a little bit white. She was like not white enough. Yeah, it was a love that could not be. It couldn't be. It and so Romeo and Juliet story. They lived together in a domestic partnership happily. De facto's. They were de facto's for their lives. It was a long time. It was 30 years that they were together. Oh. Oh, yeah, it's not like he died. For the rest of his life. It made it sound like his life was really short. It wasn't. It's and then just... she got on with hers. Nah. 30 like, years they were is fine. They had a great time together. They were a happy couple. It's just that she lived to be quite old. Okay. So. All right. Got it. Now, rumors exist that they had like 15 children. What? That's not probably true. What? They actually probably had 15 cats. Five. Okay. Oh, I think they probably had a bunch of cats, but I don't think you want to know what they did with some of the cats. Oh. We'll come to that. Oh. We'll come to that. Not what I do to my cats, which is no. just give them kisses and cuddles and pats. No. And dinner, no. biscuits and love. Yeah. That's not what they did to their cats. I know. But again, these could be sensationalized newspaper right. reports that I'm going to tell you about. And in fact, I think they are sensationalized newspaper reports. So yes, Marie Laveau did love her cats. Biscuits in love. She loved them dearly. And how dare anybody say otherwise. All right. Anyway, they had five children together that we know of not because 15. the official records say this. They had the three Maries. Yep. And then two sons. Unfortunately, only two of their children survived into adulthood. Two of the Maries? Two of the Maries, yeah. Marie Philomene and Marie Eloise Eucharist. I don't know which one is Marie the second. Oh, no. Because different reports say different things. Oh. Some of them say that it was Marie Philomene and some say it was Marie Eloise. I don't know. Who knows? Nobody knows. Nobody this knows. is the thing about this story. So the two Maries apparently looked really a lot like their mother. They were very beautiful. One of them in particular was also a voodoo practitioner. So some of the confusion around this may account for some of the kind of wild rumors that sprang up about Laveau, including things like that she could basically apparate, like she could just ah. like appear and disappear yeah. at, at certain being two places at once. So but it was just her daughter's. It Love was it. just her daughters. Love like, it. I swear I just saw Marie at church. And someone else is like, no, I saw her at the market. And actually, you probably both saw Marie Laveau. It just wasn't the same Marie Laveau. It was just a different Marie Laveau. Yeah. So Love it. Two daughters look the same as her. It's very confusing. Now, after the birth of the second Marie, the first child Marie, the second Marie, you understand what I mean? Not really. But go on. <laughs> the family moved to their famous resident on St. Anne Street near Congo Square. Now, according to Talent. Oh, yes. Richard? Is that his name? Dick? R Richard? Dick Talent? Dick Talent. Oh, my God. Robert is that Talent? his name? Dick I think Talent. it's Robert Talent. Oh, damn. I want his name to be Dick Talent. He deserves to be called Dick Talent. Okay. So, according to Dick Talent. The guy who wrote the not-to-be-trusted yeah. account. 
Laveau used voodoo and Grigri to get the house. Now, Grigri, that's like a little, it's like an amulet. It's sort of a charm. Oh, okay. A little pouch that's filled with various sacred objects and can bring you good luck or evil luck or a particular kind of thing. Like, say you want prosperity, you can have a little prosperity Grigri. Or say you want revenge on your neighbor, you can have a revenge Grigri. (laughs) I think that the prosperity one's more common. Yeah. So, apparently she used Grigri to get this house. So the story is that a prominent young man about town. Oh. A privileged young white man. Oh. And he did something bad. <gasps> did he get someone pregnant? He murdered. Oh. I think. Okay. Probably. Poss- yeah, that's worse. And as all young prominent men are wont to do, his father was like, I shall not have this little stain on my son's good name. Good name. Ruin his whole life? Would you let one little murder ruin this man's <laughs> life? How uh, dare we allow this one trifling little murder? Yeah. Think about his football career. His potential. He's going to go to Harvard. Mm-hmm. So dad went to Marie Laveau and he was like, okay, Marie, I need you to use your voodoo to get my son off the hook. So apparently. For that murder. For murder. <laughs> so she went to church. And she sat there at the altar in St. Louis Cathedral with three guinea peppers in her mouth. Now, That's not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> what did you think I was going to say? Guinea pigs. With, <laughs> with three guinea pigs in her mouth. How did been... she fit all three <laughs> guinea pigs? It would have been a challenge. In her mouth. But impressive. Yeah. Like, imagine if she had. Like, that's the type of thing that I feel like the spirits would reward you for. Yeah. Good oh, job getting those fucking guinea pigs in your mouth. Yes, I'll do whatever you want. That's and amazing. She spat them out at the end, though. She yeah, didn't swallow all three guinea pigs. Of mm. course. So, guinea what's now? Guinea peppers. They're like very, very, very hot peppers. Okay, got it. So, she sat there with them at the altar in her mouth for ages and she was praying. The belief is that the spirits admire suffering. So, if you are suffering, uh, they're more likely yes. to intercede. Uh-huh. On your behalf. And so once she had said her prayers, she went to the judge's chair and she put the three guinea peppers under his chair. And then the son was miraculously let off by this judge who no longer believed any of the evidence that suggested that he was guilty as fuck. And the happy father gifted her this house. What? However, this story is bullshit. Yeah. The reason I wanted to tell it, even though it's not true, is to kind of illustrate the kind of stories that Mm -hmm. existed Mm -hmm. around her and the reason why, up until really quite recently, she was portrayed as being this sort of diabolic, evil enchantress who just would walk into a room and have everybody under her sway and she could hypnotize you just by looking at you and then she'd make you do something really terrible to your friend who was standing next to you because that's the kind of power. Three guinea pigs. Yes. 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 She bloody would. That is diabolical. Or make your friend eat three guinea pigs. Diabolical. Yeah. So what actually happened is that her the house that she grew up in her grandmother's house. Mm-hmm. I think it maybe her grandmother came into some financial trouble or I'm not sure if she passed, but either way, this house came up on the market and her husband was like, well, we'll I'll save the house for you. And they bought the house together. Uh, and Because okay. it was the house that she grew up in. Yeah. But yeah, not as, as interesting a story, but there is a cool family connection there. So there you go. Got it. Now, this house, this house. Was haunted. Probably was because this is... 
the house where she performed many of her voodoo Ooh, rituals. If it wasn't haunted then, it's haunted now. Well, unfortunately it got torn down. No! Doesn't exist anymore. Oh. I am sorry to be the bearer of bad news. It's all right. I don't really want to be haunted, so it's okay. Okay. Well, in the front room of this house, which was crowded with like candles, she had a holy images, she would hold weekly services. So she would lay out a feast for the spirits on a white tablecloth on the floor. There would be offerings of like food, like rice, fresh fruit and vegetables. There'd be candles. And the rituals would, in many ways, resemble a lot of Catholic rites. Mm. So they'd kneel before the altar, but then they would rap once for the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. They would say prayers like our Father. Do you you mean knock when you you say rap? Yeah, knock. Yeah. Yeah. They would rap. Yes. Yo. <laughs> yeah, they didn't like, yeah, well, okay. the, no, nobody uh, rap. Don't yeah, stop okay, rapping. Okay. I didn't even start. You stopped <laughs> I me saw it coming. I, I saw it coming. Then they would have a big party. They would be singing and dancing and they'd have this feast. Sounds like a lot of fun. A member of her congregation, a man named Charles Raphael, recalls that, and I quote, in the front room, she had an altar for good luck charms, money-making charms, husband-holding charms. On this altar, she had a statue of St. Peter and St. Maron, a coloured saint. In the back, Marie had an altar for bad work. Ooh. On it, she prepared charms to kill, to drive away, to break up love affairs and to spread confusion. Ooh. It was surmounted by statues of a bear, a lion, a tiger and a wolf. Ooh. That's an altar. Yeah. That's quite an altar. So we really do have these kind of two versions of Marie Laveau. And I will talk a lot more about how charitable she was. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the stuff that she did that people came to her for help with were these very kind of normal things, relationship problems, childbirth, things like helping out with lawsuits or wrongful convictions and stuff. But then, of course, I guess there's a little bit of that, like, revenge stuff. Yeah. A little bit of the well, you can't get rid have, of this person. You can't have the light without the dark. Right. You've got to have both. Why do we insist that all of these people that we talk about only have light? They can only be one thing or the other. They can be both. When just about everyone is something in the, in the middle somewhere. And you know what? More than all of this, she was an entrepreneurial woman who knew how to get it done. So that's She was kind of making money. Good. And giving people what they wanted. She was performing a service. Except for the killing of the cats and the eating of the guinea pigs. Look, we don't know whether or not that happened. <laughs> okay. To that extent. Maybe okay. she just had the bad altar that had statues of lions and wolves. Okay, yep, good. And then in her backyard, they would perform these ceremonies that conjured the spirit of the great zombie. The deity, Dambalawedo, who would apparently manifest through a snake. And so we get these, a lot of the images of Marie Laveau are with a snake. Have you seen yes. this? Yes, and they're great. They are so great. And but like, they're also that stereotype. It is. But they're also great. It's sort of one of these things that's really conflicting because I have very positive associations when I see that image. But I know the context in which that's often meant is, I mean, from a Christian perspective, the snake has all kinds of associations with the devil and evil. Mm. And so, of course, putting the snake in the hands of this black woman who was very powerful is of course supposed to conjure ideas of this woman having a power that she's not entitled to and she's not supposed to be using and she's probably not using for good things. So there's all kinds of negative associations that are kind of imprinted in these images. But at the same time, if we remove that, maybe she's just had a fucking awesome snake. (laughs) 
That's true. Yeah. And I think obviously as well in more modern times, it's also about how those images are reclaimed and reused. Absolutely. Yes. So if we may, because it comes up in a few different witness testimonies that she had a snake. Some scholars deny that she ever used a snake. They say that this was one of those things that was sort of one of the ways of creating that counter myth about her that I was talking about. But I think if she used a snake, then fucking power to her because what kind of a symbol of a woman who is totally unafraid of anything can you get than having a snake wrapped around you as you are performing this sacred ritual? To me, that is such a powerful evocation of power, you know? As long Um, as the snake is handled humanely. I'm sure she actually I have another story that comes No, it stop it. Comes with this cat's butt. Like I said, it's probably a sensationalized news piece. And I want to use it as an example of how the news sensationalized her. So I will talk about that now because as well as the rituals that she performed in her house, she was also very famous for the rituals that she would perform in Congo Square. And this is a place where basically a lot of black, both free black people and slaves were free to congregate together. And they tended to do this on Sundays because, like I said. As you said, yeah, that was the day off. Yep. yep. And they would have markets. They would trade with each other. And they would just hang out and chill. And so here, Laveau would lead her followers in dance and worship. Apparently, these were so curious to people that they would just come and watch as like a, I guess like a tourist event mm. or they would, they just wanted to see what was going on. And so it, it attracted all kinds of people, but I guess it was also such a threat. And this is the reason why it was written about so negatively, both in the press and in the accounts afterwards, because I guess the idea of all of these black people congregating together at the behest of a powerful black woman that's really dangerous because mm. they can get ideas from each other. Yeah, you know, you don't, you don't want them talking too much to each other or feeling empowered or by one another. Forming a group, yes, right. A lot of people in one spot, and to the outsiders, what they were doing looked like devil worship, and so it must have been really, I guess, threatening to a lot of powerful white people who were around. And this is an article from 1850 that kind of sums up this idea. It says, and I quote, carried on in secret, they bring the slaves into contact with disorderly free Negroes and mischievous whites. And the effect cannot be otherwise than to promote discontent, inflame passions, teach them vicious practices and indispose them to the performance of their duty to their masters. Oh, I see. I get what you're saying. Yes. Yes, And mischievous whites. Yes. A lot of white people were just very kind of intrigued yeah. by it. And they, I guess, didn't feel threatened. Because like I said, this was a very multicultural city. So it's not like all white people were like completely racist. A lot of people did like they mixed a lot and, mm. and chatted to everybody. So it's not like everyone was opposed to it. So, yeah, there were a lot of white people who were involved mm. as well. And then there were the rituals that took place, the very, very, very special rituals that took place on St. John's Eve when they would gather on the shore of Lake Pontchartrain. I hope I said that correctly. Apologies to to our American friends if I did not. 
And this was like a really profane celebration. It's where a lot of things like initiations took place. There was singing, dancing and drumming, spirit possession. According to Luke Turner, who is Zora Neale Hurston's voodoo teacher, there was like kind of a lot of sacred drumming and Marie Laveau would rise out of the water with a communion candle burning on her head and two other candles in each hand. What an image. Yeah, lead, lead everybody in this sacred dancing and drumming however like I said there were very sensationalized newspaper accounts of this and these included things like there being a cauldron over a fire and that a snake was brought out in a box and then and I'm I'm sorry Alicia should I cover my ears the snake was chopped into three pieces and the three pieces were each put into the cauldron by different people Marie Laveau being the first one that they would then call for a I'm cat. All, no, I'm all into witchcraft and shit, man, but I'm not into the killing of things. And then there would be a cat that no. would be brought out. And they would pat the cat. Yes. And the cat would purr and yep. curl up in a ball on someone's lap. Yes. And then everyone would go home. Yeah. It's weird how it takes such a turn, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> what happens? And then they brought out a rooster. And... Everyone went, that's an attractive rooster. Yes. And set it free. Good. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Now you can cover your ears. Oh, I'm going to have to. And obviously they sacrificed the cat and the rooster. No. Yeah. But like I said, these are newspaper reports and we don't know whether or not we can believe them. It's probably that sensationalized version designed to demonize her to mm-hmm. the white audience and to create this counter myth to bring down a woman, a black woman who was too powerful. So of course you're going to align her with, yeah. And like things like having a cat and stuff like that is tied up with these kind of other ideas of witchcraft and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, not that voodoo is, you know, the same thing, but of course in the white Catholic imaginary, there are so many different associations, particularly when you bring in the idea of devil worship yeah. along with it. However, what we can trust is a lot of these first-person accounts from that project I was talking about, they have very strong descriptions of who Marie Laveau was and the way that she conducted herself in the world. And so she's said to have walked proudly. She had her hair always in a tignon, which is a Creole turban. And this is particularly symbolic And it has really important significance because it was a symbol of resistance. So in Mm. in 1786, the Spanish governor forbade any woman of color from wearing veils, bonnets, from adorning their hair or wearing their hair in a way that sort of showed outside of, yep, or any kind of jewelry or anything. So to wear a tignon was a symbol of resistance. Yeah, right. Especially because they would often wear it with their hair curling out the front. Yes. And this is how Marie Laveau wore it. So she's sort so of like... provocative. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like a double fuck you. Yeah. You know, I've got my turban on and I've got my hair showing. Yeah. So what the fuck are you going to do about it? Yeah. And she would walk through the streets in this swishing blue skirt that was billowing around her and it came up into this, you know, tight little waist. And she was apparently really beautiful... She wore big hoop earrings. Um, she loved jewelry. So she was always had bracelets and brooches and, you know, drooping earrings and things like that. She just had an aura of power and confidence everywhere that she went. And this is something that people say about her. Like all of these witness accounts are basically just like, 
yeah, you fucking knew it when Marie Laveau was in the room. Like, because yeah. she commanded your attention. She commanded her presence. And I can kind of like, I just have this mental image of this mm. woman who would be, who would be the kind of person that you probably are terrified of in both a totally admiring way and because you're like oh she would crush me in a second (laughs) well you've painted like you've painted such a picture such a vivid picture these descriptions are so vivid and what we have to also remember is that so many of these descriptions come from people who were children when they Mm. saw marie laveau like these are accounts taken in the 30s and 40s from you know people who were in their 80s and 90s who were literally children when they knew her and that image has remained so strong in their memories that they can all speak to the same thing Mm. 80 years later. Like that's the woman that she was and I think that is incredible. Yeah. Because she evoked so much power. The community looked to her as a source of power. They looked to her as a leader. And she was. But again, whenever we have that much power, we also, of course, get the opposite side. And so there are other accounts from this same oral storytelling project that describe her as like a notorious hag. (gasps) who reigns over an ignorant and superstitious group of people who (laughs) made, they like, apparently people made like noise complaints about what would go on in her house. They, she was called things like a she devil, a hell cat. So one. Hell cat is fucking great. I I love love, that too. I love hell cat. So good. This is one woman who is a free woman of color. Okay. So this is not like your racist white lady down the street. Who's upset by all the noise going on next door. She <laughs> apparently said Marie Laveau, who that she devil, that hellcat Marie Laveau. God came here on furlough and left Lucifer in charge, but he corrupted heaven so that he disposed of him like Marie Laveau. She corrupted new Orleans until God stopped her by death. Oh yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So she wasn't, Again, contradictory. She wasn't everybody's favourite No, but, like, who is? She was a very powerful person. Like I said, though, as a leader of her community, she was a very charitable woman and she gave a lot to her community. So a lot of that work that she did, a lot of the voodoo work, and it was all about often using that knowledge from the information she'd gathered from people around her to advise people about their lives. And then of course she would add in some ritual and some Gregory and things to go with it, but she would also heal. So she would, we know that she was a really talented healer and actually she worked as a nurse for a very long time. So she nursed people with yellow fever. Mm-hmm. Like I said, actually yeah. did say that before. Yeah. So she attended people who were sick and she was very famous for her knowledge of herbal medicine another thing that she did that might surprise you is that she was particularly beneficent is that a word yeah yeah to people in prison so she went and visited prisoners very often particularly people who were on death row radical compassion oh man what what a term what a term is that a real thing it's a real thing radical compassion there you go yeah so she had a lot of radical compassion and apparently so she would bail, help bail people out of prison, helped pe- those who had been accused of crimes unfairly and she would take altars 
to the prison in order to provide spiritual comfort. Mm -hmm. And she also took food. Actually, that's a really interesting one, just thinking about that, because I suppose like the prison system, the Christian white prison system, because that's who's running it, only provides one type of religious outlet. Yeah. They're not going to call in your local anybody else. You're going to get your priest and that's all you're going to get. Yeah. So unless she offers that service, that yeah. service is not going to be forthcoming. Like, and, yeah, and again, it is this sort of half-half service. So she'd bring in a, an altar, she'd drape it with white muslin, there would be candles, she brought in fresh flowers like camellias in, in little vases, and then in the centre she would have her beautiful Bible that was gilted in gold, allegedly. And, of course, there would be the virgin on this altar as well. And she would, yeah, pray with the prisoners, the inmates. And I think that's really cool. That's really nice. Yeah. Because otherwise, yeah, you've just got some old dude in a cassock with a Bible. Who might not be telling you anything that you have any, any sort of actual relation to whatsoever. And apparently, and this is interesting, I don't know how, it depends how you feel about this particular topic, but she would even help euthanize patients. Really? Yeah, so that they didn't have to face, you know, the horror of execution. Uh, if they wanted it, of course. Because like, she didn't just, like, kill yes, inmates yeah, right. yeah. willy-nilly, but, yeah. like, if that's what they wanted. Because what was the form of execution at the time? Hanging, mm. I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you didn't want to have to go up on the gallows, then she could help you take care of it beforehand. With like a poison or something? Yeah. Well, apparently, and again, I don't think we know for sure, but likely, and according to legend, she used a toxin called tetrodotoxin. And this was known as the, quote, zombie poison. Oh. It came from Haiti. And it is a real poison. And what it does is it slows down your metabolic rate. And so it can cause sort of like coma or paralysis, but it can also kill you. So you just sort of go to sleep and you die. It's also the main toxic element of pufferfish. Okay. okay. In lesser quantities, it can cause this sort of death-like effect. Yes, right. And again, this that is can where... can get you out of things. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. So here's where we can't have the legend come back up because this toxin was available on the market because there were so many refugees from Haiti. There were a lot of communication channels with Haiti. So there's a lot of stuff moving back yeah. and forth. So they had and did access. did you get it out of puffer fish? Is that how you No, I think in Haiti they got it from another source. Okay. So, yeah. I'm just asking out of pure curiosity. Yeah. It's not like I'm going to go out and farm myself a puffer fish and milk it for its venom. <laughs> I'm not actually sure, to be honest. My research didn't take me quite down that far in the rabbit (laughs) hole of this particular research. But like, so this is the legend version, is that voodoo doctors would use this poison if they wanted, I I guess this is where we get the idea of zombies, but if they wanted like a slave, because you would use the toxin on the person, they would enter this death-like state where they'd sort of be paralyzed or I guess probably have some sort of brain damage or something. And then when you bring them back, they are then like bound to you Mm. and have to do your bidding, which is, I guess, part of one of the, you know, zombies these days are very, very different. Very different idea. Ideas. But yeah, zombies in that kind of voodoo tradition have that the undead who have risen to do your bidding. So that's part of it. And Necromancy, then, really. Yeah. yeah. So a great word. 
<laughs> and that's also, I just love the idea of the like burying somebody who's not dead. Cause you could do this. Like you, you love could do that this. idea. Okay. Love in a curious way. Okay. And this is what apparently she would do is that she would make it so that the inmates looked dead. So they would get buried mm-hmm. in the churchyard. Yep. And then she'd come along or get her guys to come along in the middle of the night, dig them up, and then those people are free. Yep. And everyone thinks they're dead. It's the perfect escape. It is. It's also what happened to Mulder in the most recent series of X-Files that I've been watching on reruns. (laughs) Is it? Sort of. In a vague way. I did not know. (laughs) Totally unrelated. I guess part of the charity element of her personality as well that's a little bit contested is that something else that might surprise you about Marie Laveau is that she owned slaves. I don't know if anything surprises. Oh, okay. Yeah, no. (laughs) Did you expect that? I think I had heard that before, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So we do know that she owned slaves. We don't know how she treated them. We don't know the exact purpose of what they did in her house, but like she did own slaves. Now, one of the scholars that I relied a lot on for this research Bandrich, who I will link in the show notes because her book is a really great study. And one of the things I really love about it is that she has a chapter called the historical Marie Laveau and another chapter called the mythical Marie Laveau. And her conclusion is called the politics of myth making. Yeah. So it's very much up my alley. So she did a lot of archival research for her study. And she reckons that Marie Laveau and Glapion bought all of these slaves in order to free them. I was going to I was going to ask if that was the theory. Yeah, and she thinks that they were part like activists in one of the underground oh, abolitionist yeah, movements. Right. Mm-hmm. However, other scholars dispute this and say that there's not really a lot of evidence to suggest that that might have been the case, and we do know that a lot of free people of color did own slaves. That's probably a difficult idea to reckon with mm. because I don't know. That's a hard one. That's a really hard one. But we do know that it's the case. So, yeah, we don't know whether or not she did indeed set them free. Maybe she gave them their freedom as like a incentive or as a gift or something like that. I don't know. That's kind of either counter to the charity or in line with the charity. Yeah, it's difficult to know. Yeah. And another thing about her that's kind of complicated is that she started, and this is something that was continued primarily by her daughter, but that she owned what was essentially a brothel. Um, she had this mm. house, and at the house she would host parties that primarily wealthy white dudes would come to and there would be black women dancing and there would be food and drink. And then there was this one account from this guy and he said that like, yeah. And so then after we'd all eaten and drunk, we would just chase whichever girl we wanted. And then we got to have her. And meanwhile, Marie Laveau would just be sitting there in her rocking chair in the corner, just sort of watching the proceedings. I don't know, again, because apparently it was Marie II who was doing this, but it was maybe set up by Marie I. Because another thing that a lot of people say is that Marie II was not as charitable as her mother. And, like, she was a far kind of sterner person. Mm. And a lot of the negative stories are maybe more associated with Marie II. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know about that one. Same time though, I suppose the project isn't really about clearing her name or no, it's not about deciding whether or not she was a good person or a bad person, whether or not 
this was something that she'd sit back and be fine with or whether or not she owned slaves for yeah. one reason or the other. It's actually unpicking the the historicity of which yeah. it is. Like and, and what where did these stories, she actually do? Where do these stories come from? How have they evolved? Yeah, exactly. Why might these different yeah. versions of events exist? Because the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Exactly. Let's be honest. Yeah. As it is with most of the women that we talk yeah. about on this podcast. Like, I believe that she probably did dance naked with maybe a snake around her neck and, yeah. you know, call upon the powers of the spirits into her body. Like that's yeah. probably something very close to what would have gone on. And, yeah, she's an entrepreneurial woman who is fucking smart and is interested in looking after herself and her family. Mm. And so like, you know how I said there was like 15 children, apparently it's because she had so many people living in her house. So she just took care of everybody. She had her own five children. Her grandchildren lived with her nieces and nephews may have lived with her. She also apparently just took in street kids. Mm. She just like fostered a bunch of kids. So she was a giving generous woman, but it doesn't mean that she didn't look out for herself as number one. And that she didn't like, you know, know how the system worked Mm -hmm. and worked to the system. Yeah. You know, like if she knows that a bunch of stupid white men are going to pay $10 each to come to a party at her house and watch black girls dance, she's probably going to host that party. Yeah. Yeah. She has all those connections because she's very, very well connected to white society there. All of their wives are coming to her for their hair and for their gossip and for their grigri, you know, like why wouldn't she take advantage of all of that? Yeah. Yeah. She's just a woman trying to get ahead in the world. Yeah. And we forget this, I think, sometimes. But, of course, her story does have to end somewhere. Right? It does, eventually. (laughs) As does my wine. Yeah. And in March 1869, Laveau declared that she was performing her last voodoo ceremony. She's bowing out. She's done. Well, at least she has to retire. Yeah. It's not like she's getting murdered. No, she lived a very long life. So she was in her 60s mm. by this point when she was retiring. And then she went on just happened. Possibly her 70s, depending on when you yeah, she that's was right. Born. Yeah, I think like probably late 60s, but possibly early 70s. And then she, she sort of spent her late years at home with her family, hanging out on her porch, sitting in her chair, watching life in the community happen. I think she remained a really kind of present figure mm. in the community. Mm. But, of course, her daughter then took on the reins and became the new voodoo queen of New Orleans. But I have a description of her final ceremony, which took place apparently on March 21st, 1869. And this is also from Fandrich's book. Um, And it says, The rites having been commenced, an elderly turbaned female dressed in yellow and red ascended a sort of dais and chanted a wild fetish song to which the others kept up an accompaniment with their voices and with a drum-like beat of their hands and feet at the same time they commenced to move in a circle while gradually increasing their time as the motion gained in intensity the flowers and other ornaments disappeared from their hair and their dresses were torn open and each one conducted herself like a bacchanate Mm. everyone was becoming drunk and intoxicated with the prevailing madness and excitement they danced in a circle in the center of which stood a basket with a dozen hissing snakes whose heads were projecting from the cover what an image yeah the snakes were happy 
Yes, they're not they're being snakes. chopped up. They're part of the ritual. <laughs> Sorry, I'm so concerned about snakes. Aren't I? <laughs> I agree with so you. So concerned I for their welfare. Bloody great image, though. I know. That's why I wanted to read some of these quotes from these apparent witnesses and the accounts because they just are so evocative, mm, mm-hmm. and it's great because we don't have any images left over. We don't have like film reel from the time. Yeah. So, but it's pretty easy to imagine something like that. It's amazing. So when she retired, the papers all declared that there would be a new voodoo queen would be coronated in the mm. ceremony. But I mean, really, voodoo doesn't have like an official hierarchy. Like Marie Laveau <laughs> was the queen of voodoo really as an honorarium. Like yeah. she wasn't the literal queen of voodoo. You know yeah. what I mean? She didn't hand over her reins to somebody in an official sense. Although I guess in a symbolic sense and in the way that it's come down to us today, she kind of did to her daughter, mm-hmm. who then became the Marie Laveau II, the also other queen of voodoo. And like I said, even in her old age, she remained this really commanding presence. She is described as being regal and brilliant with wild grey witch's tresses, which Ooh, I love as well. Like, like that. imagine that turbaned hair, like with her little ringlets coming out the front. And then she's just still rocking that look when it's all grey ringlets coming out the front. And when she passed, there were astounding eulogies written about her. So she did finally die on June 15, 1881. Oh, shit. So she was in her, like, close to her being, like, 80. Yeah. Her family claimed that she was close to 100, though. Mm, Maths doesn't quite work, but sure. No, but again, maybe it's because they didn't even really know. Mm, Like, (laughs) you know, or she'd lied about her age or something, you know, as you want. The whole time, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, many of the eulogies were really glowing. They praised her healing work, her community work, her beauty, of course. But some of them are probably also partly responsible for many of the inaccuracies Mm -hmm. that kind of continue about her life. Some of them are even like paint her as this revered saint-like woman, that she's piously Catholic, which is not a lie. She Mm -hmm. was piously Catholic, but a lot of them sort of omit a lot of the voodoo stuff in her life. And instead she's held as this beacon of community and the church, which is interesting. Mm. And then of course, others were not so nice and they sort of damned her for her things like her indecent orgies. And chopping Uh, up snakes. Yeah. So I'd condemn her for that too. (laughs) We don't know that that's what she did, but she might've Look. You never know. Apparently this newspaper article that I was quoting was written by an anonymous witness. (laughs) You can always trust an anonymous witness, can't you? Yeah. Well, apparently, like, white people used to go and just spy on the events that took place on the river because, like, they were just like, oh, there she is. She's doing a voodoo ceremony. Let's get in on that. The ones in the square, I guess. It was, like, Mm. harder to be Mm -hmm. involved because it was a much more sacred ritual. Now, the body of Marie Laveau was interred famously in the Glapion family tomb in St. Louis Cemetery. Which is why I can't go there anymore. Yes, because apparently people would, like I said, they bring her offerings still because it's believed that if you mark an X on her tomb and you bring her an offering, she will grant your wishes. Fuck yeah. People also used to paint her tomb blue because that's a very portentous colour in voodoo beliefs. However, some people think that she may not even be buried there. So, like, maybe this is a bit of an Eva Peron situation. Oh, my goodness. And her body has gone (gasps) walkabouts. Oh, no. Either way, it's very, very famous and 
thousands and thousands of people go to visit her every year still to this very day and there's a lot in her legacy yeah i think we all know that like you said i mean there's so many sort of representations of her in popular culture now mm. i mean i don't know if there's been you know how old those representations of popular there's culture like are fictional books that go back away yeah right yeah yeah so she has come up time and again yeah definitely And I guess the first time she really came up into the broader public imagination outside of New Orleans was probably with Zora Neale Hurston's study. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like a lot of the fiction really writes her life as like a bit of a soap opera that pits her against a male nemesis, Dr. John, a prominent voodoo (gasps) priest. Dr. John, they call me Dr. John. Is that Dr. John? Yeah, sure. Whoever that is. (laughs) All right, never mind. And they sort of say that the key conflict of her life was between her respectable Catholicism and her evil voodoo practices. Mm. So they're not like very good accounts of her life. (laughs) And even like, have you seen American Horror Story, Coven? Look, I've seen bits and pieces, but you know me, I don't watch much television unless it's reruns from the 90s. (laughs) Like X-Files. Like X-Files. But the only thing that that show really got right was the fact that she is a hairdresser. Oh, really? Oh, I think there were snakes in that as well. But even like images of her. So there's a few paintings around. The paintings are probably actually of her daughter, but she was actually probably relatively light skinned and could, according to a lot of accounts, could have passed as Spanish. So a lot of people have an idea of her being like she, yes, she was a black woman because she had, you know, black ancestry. And according to white society, if you're not 100% white, you're not white, which I say obviously within the context of, the white patriarchy, but she is often depicted as being quite dark. And that's actually probably not true. She was probably quite light skinned and of course, very beautiful as everybody says. So yeah, look, there's mixed parts of her legacy, I suppose. And apparently there's also a wax figure of her in the (gasps) New Orleans museum. Where Not she, like a Madame Tussauds. I, Do they have a Madame Tussauds? Maybe it's a knockoff Madame Tussauds. Fuck yeah, I'd go to that. Yeah. I really like them, especially when they have like dungeons mm-hmm. which seems isn't to be that the I only think... reason you go yes like i'm not going to them to see like the i don't wax want to see... justin bieber no i don't want to see wax beyonce i want to see Fuck like shit. the wax torture devices <laughs> yeah. is that, that, is that make us weird is that wrong well something that will then tickle you about yeah. her depiction mm-hmm. here is that she's labeled as the last great american witch oh hello yeah yeah that does which tickle is me. kind of inaccurate because she's not really a witch she's a voodoo still, queen but you mm-hmm. know <laughs> still a pretty good title to get. Yeah, yeah, I would yeah, be yeah. very happy with that title and that would be wildly inaccurate yeah. about me. <laughs> For many reasons. For several reasons, but it would be great. Yeah. I wouldn't I'd take it. it. I'd take it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's some power. So yeah, I think the narrative around her is changing. I think as people become more aware of the fact that so many of the earlier depictions of her did come from this idea of creating a counter myth mm. that would diminish her power and her potency. And I think now people are starting to realize that she was powerful but also she was complicated and she was uh she obviously had shades of light and dark as all of the women that we talk about do because they're all human beings but she was 
a person who knew herself, she knew what she wanted, she wasn't afraid to go and get it, and she used every asset that she had available to her to make the most of her life, and she did it fucking successfully, and that is why I think that she is so awesome, and that is my book report on Marie Laveau. Thank you very much. A plus. Thanks. A plus on your oh book my God, report. Thank you. That's the best book report I've read in a long time. Yay. What a brilliant way to start off season four. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> well, Great. yeah. I'm sorry. I feel like I talked so much. I didn't really give you much of a chance to say anything. I was enthralled. Okay. So good. it's okay. I okay, didn't have much cool. to say other than enthralled. Um. So that does kick off season four. And hey, look, it kicks it off with some things that we may <laughs> maybe talk about a lot. But that's yeah. okay. Or oh, what? Like women who use supernatural powers to assert themselves in the world and create agency and do really cool things. Yeah. Why would we find that interesting, I wonder? Well, uh, hopefully you find that interesting as well. Yeah. And that's why you've listened this far. We know from the stats that you do. Yeah. And that's <laughs> why you're going to tune in again to us next Can time. Can you, Alicia? Can you give us a hint? Where are we going? I can. can. you set a scene for us for next fortnight? I can, I can. Hey, we may have been there before. We're oh. going to go there again. And we're going to stay in America. Oh, yeah. okay. But we're going to move into the uh, 20th century. Oh. And we're going to one of our favourite times <gasps> in the 20th century, which is, Lauren. Dust Bowl. Ooh, no, not quite. Roaring 20s. The 20s. Roaring 20s. The 20s. Lauren's doing jazz hands. You can't see them. Um, So that's where we're going to go next time. Excellent. And then we've got a whole year ahead of us. So many stories to tell. Could go anywhere. So many myths to dig into. You know what? It's an exciting start to 2020 all around, not just because of deviant women, but also just because of life in general. We've been, Yeah, life in general. We've been doing some exciting things. It's fringe time here in Adelaide. It's festival time. It is Mardi Gras in Sydney, and we wish all of our Sydney friends a safe and happy and fucking great time and we're missing out on um, some some sh- we're missing out on some friends doing some good shows fringe time and our friends are doing mardi gras things but we also have people doing fringe things it's just it's there's a- too many things to Ugh. see i can't afford them all anyway but you know what one wonderful thing that our listeners out there in adelaide can get on board with is state theater company have a Fabulous show called Dance, Dance Nation, Nation. Uh, which does tap into all of the things that we love yeah, as well. Not witches, so sure, but. Uh, yeah, but like having a predominantly female cast and crew, can we just say? And also, really importantly, a female director, which in the theatre is honestly really important. And like that female directing representation is fucking good and we are so behind it but it's also it's about loving doing what you love versus doing what you're good at and how we downplay our talents and that we are conditioned from an early age to do that and it's pretty much all about the world of competitive dancing Uh, i used to be a competitive dancer so so you know all about this i know this world i know dance moms i know glitter i know having your hair pulled back into a bun so tightly that you don't know if you're ever going to be able to see out of your eyes again (laughs) 
It's so true. And that smell of hairspray. Oh, my God. It's so such a visceral memory. It is, isn't for me. it? Yeah. yeah. And whenever I – this is a weird association, but whenever I smell hairspray, I can feel the very particular texture of the carpet in the dressing rooms oh. at the theatre where I used to be warming up and particularly when I used to be doing the splits. <laughs> like I can feel it on the bottom of my heel as I split – so they, I, yeah. that's another thing about me. I used to be able to do splits. So yeah. No, back in the day. Back. Anyway. Yeah. But it's sort of part Dance Moms, part Hunger Games. <laughs> sounds amazing. And we cannot recommend it to you yeah. highly enough. If you're in Adelaide, you can also have a special code for a discount. Just use the code FESTIVAL for 10% off at the box office. Book. On the State Theatre Company website. It's running from the 21st of February, so that's already started by the time you're listening to this, right through until the 7th of March. So if you're in Adelaide, you've still got time to go and see it with your discount code. Please get along to it. Please. Great. And we might see you there. That's been all from us. As you know, if you like what you hear, you can find more content on Patreon where we have short Whole in History episodes, blooper reels, and more. And if you want to get more Deviant Women stuff in your life, you can even buy merchandise on Etsy. And, of course, if you can't afford to support us financially, please, the very least you can do is give us a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify. Leave us a review. We would love you forever. Share the word. Spread it at Deviant Women on all your social media platforms. And that is us. We are out. Big love as always to Brenda Davies, sound engineer, to India Hui for the music, and to Dan, our executive producer. You guys see the hand gestures that we're making. You can't and see we're them. making so many hand gestures. We'll see you next time. See you. Bye. It's so good to be back. Bye.